Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, I sat down with three of the new Hamilton City Councilors to discuss their plans for the new year. British Columbia has voted once again to keep the first-past-the-post system in their elections. Is that the end of electoral reform in Canada? Also, U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis resigned yesterday, citing major policy differences with the president. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to do something that we had actually wanted to do since election night. Uh, we had a number of new people elected to Hamilton City Council, and uh, they've obviously been sworn in and uh, hit the ground running on a number of key issues. But it's always an interesting perspective to uh, talk to some of the folks that are new to the game uh, and get some of the, their thoughts and feelings about the way the system works and uh, maybe their expectations. And to that end, we are pleased to welcome three of the uh, the new councillors uh, that joined us on Hamilton City Council. Maureen Wilson is the councillor for Ward 1. It's good to see you again. Good morning. Uh, Narendra Nan, of course, Ward 3 councillor. Thanks for coming in again. Good morning. A pleasure to be and here. And John Paul Danko from Ward 8. Good to see you again, Bill. Good to have you guys here. Let me just start it off with the obvious question. Uh, what were your expectations and, and as you started to get into the ground? Because you, you all, as I've talked to all three of you since election night, uh, didn't just go on vacation after election night until swearing in day. I mean, there, there was an indoctrination. There was a lot of other things. Uh, did did it meet your expectations? Did it exceed them? Were you disappointed? Maureen, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, and you, just by way of, you had some background on this because you've worked at City Hall on yeah, the administrative yeah. side for quite a long yeah, time. I'm a policy wonk, Yeah. so for sure. Um, and don't lose that, by the way. <laughs> try not to. Um, I. It's a fast-moving game intentionally so. Um, it's a game that favors incumbents because of the speed. And if I could just draw on some of the wisdom of the greatest goalie ever, perhaps, Ken Dryden, um, you've either got to figure out where you want to try and slow the game down so you can um, provide some influence, or you've got to change the game. And and that's, that is what I knew, but that is what I really appreciate right now, uh, uh, 17 days in. Narendra? Yeah, 17 days in. I feel like it's uh, Financial Governance 101 <laughs> and uh, pouring through that budget book over the, my holidays, reading Becoming and reading all of my municipal budget books. Um, but that aside, it's, it's actually very, very important for me to uh, truly understand how the entire process works so that I can fulfill my role uh, elected to council to make the right kind of decisions and most importantly, make informed decisions. I think as a group of newbies, and for speaking for myself anyway, um, I want to feel confident about every time I vote around that horseshoe. And so if if I don't feel like I'm informed or have the opportunity to ask the questions that I need to, um, it, it puts it puts us in a very awkward position. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, I do appreciate that uh, staff have been wonderful at responding to our questions and answering any questions that we have. But that said, um, you know, around the horseshoe, the one thing that I'm definitely learning is that sometimes it feels like an auction house and uh, other times it does feel like we're having a meaningful discussion. So finding the right balance between moving things along in order to make sure that we're doing our business in a timely fashion, but also making sure that we're doing good governance. And I think process is critical. John Paul? It's, uh, it's certainly been a challenge um, getting accustomed to uh, how things are done at City Hall. Coming from private uh, business has been uh, a pretty big change. Also, just going right into budget season where we have extra meetings, all-day meetings stacked onto the regular schedule has been a real challenge for me anyway. So that means going through an all-day meeting, then coming home, making sure you're up to date on the agenda and everything that you want to ask for the meeting for tomorrow, and then doing that uh, over and over. It feels like I've been there for quite a bit longer than we have. <laughs> <laughs> I got, uh, has anybody seen, it's an old classic movie from 1942 called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, um, James Stewart. That. James Stewart. He plays a, a young, yeah. you know, shiny <laughs> senator who's elected, uh, t Jefferson Smith, who gets there. Uh, he's the junior senator from the state that uh, that he's representing, and uh, Claude Rains plays the guy who's been there for like a thousand years. Anyway, one of the subplots of the whole movie is he, this is guy's never been in politics, but he wants to make change, he wants to make things right, and gets there and finds out, well, there's a way we do things here, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, and it's 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 n nobody has that one to one conversation, but it's implied time and time and time again, whether it's at a committee, whether it's at votes, or any other thing. Uh, I'll say this on behalf of all of you. That exists at Hamilton City Hall, and every city hall for that matter. The people that have been there a long time, 
uh, don't like somebody coming in here and ruffling the feathers and saying, look, there's a way we get things done, etc. cetera. Uh, how do you handle that? Because you're going to have to handle it at some point. I think Dorinder uh, really touched on that earlier when she, she mentioned, um, you know, trying to be as um, up-to-date on things. And I think it comes down to, as well as, as Maureen said, picking your battles and really trying to focus in on the things that are important, um, that in particular that you want to focus on, and then trying to maybe move those ones forward and, and not... It, and it's tough to to let some things go, um, you know, coming in, like you said, you, you know, you want to change the world, but that's not necessarily going to be, uh, you have to be realistic about what you can accomplish, especially as a single, single counselor in a, a group of 16. I guess it all, sorry. Anyway. Go ahead. Um, it, what are your objectives of r- for running? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, w- w- why did you put your name on the ballot? What is it that you're trying to accomplished. And um, I said this during the campaign, and I know it sounds hokey, but I mean it. Um, I need to know at the end of the day when I walk home, and if I run into one of my neighbors, that I can look them in the eye and said, I, I, I did my best today for you. Um, and sometimes, you know, it is a measure of what does doing your best mean on that particular day. Um, but, it's, but it's clear about being doing your best, trying your best, um, acting with integrity. And while I understand, um, Narendra used the auction house analogy, I used the hockey analogy. Um, yes, there are some who don't, who, who will take um, issue with you asking questions or questioning the game. And um, fair enough. But all of us got around that horseshoe the same way. Um, and in fact, those of us um, who got there have, are there for the first time actually had to work really hard in open seats. And um, we didn't run as junior counselors. Um, we weren't elected to sit at the kids' table in the <laughs> restaurant. So, um, and if that's what I mean by changing the game. So the city manager process, for example, on how that recruitment process was set out prior to the election, um, I think it's not an acceptable way in which to choose a city manager. See, we went into this, and I'm telling you guys before we started the segment, in 97 when I got elected, we were a bunch of newbies. There was five newbies on that, on a 60-member council. That's a pretty significant number, too. But I got to tell you, in hindsight, even the selection process, like what committees you're going to sit on, yeah. uh, who's going to do what, it was almost like the veterans said, look, you just tell us what you want, and we'll, we'll think about it and see when, and, and you know, you, yeah, yeah, you got to have a say, but it was pretty much implied that, well, we'll make the decisions about who's going to do what here. And, uh, and that, that's, first of all, a little intimidating when you're a newbie, but second of all, it's resentful. Well, uh, and it, it, it can cause a rift right off the, ga- the get-go. And it can also, it, it speaks right against what people who are voting are asking for, which is a governance process that is transparent, that is consistent, and that is upholding the best practices of good governance. And so when we fall into practicing as a government body, whether it's, whether it's city council, whether it's any other level of government, and choose tradition versus transparency and an mm-hmm. open process that is communicated to our public about these are how these decisions are actually going to be made. Um, I think we we fall into participating in the, I would say, decay of our democracy. Um, and we start to take away the integrity of our governance. So I think it's critical for us to be challenging tradition, um, whether we're a group of new uh, counselors or, or veteran counselors. I think it's really important at this time in this state of society, uh, globally, nationally, and in our city to make sure that we are providing excellence in our governance. It's required of us and it's expected of us. And I want to end every single day leaving City Hall, going back into my community to say I brought it and I brought it solid and I brought it fully for my residents. Yeah, and there's not a lot, a lot of love out there, Bill, for that tradition. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I heard on the campaign. No, trail. absolutely, absolutely not. That, you know, everything from that place is a tar pit to, <laughs> um, you know, how are you going to survive? And, you know, uh, not to overstate this, but at a time when maybe our democratic institutions and norms are being challenged at every level, 
uh, that's you you have got to go in there with the aim of transparency as Narinder said the goal of that of providing good governance asking the right questions and knowing that you know you got there in a fair democratic manner and uh, you have a job to do and it's your role to do it let me ask you something about the role of, of the counselor uh, and, and this is probably far too elementary a, a characterization, but th- there's you mentioned being a policy wonk. There's the big picture stuff, mm-hmm. that, that obvi- but there's the little stuff. There's yeah. the, the, you know, fix the crack in the sidewalk, mm-hmm. get that tree out of there. Uh, and you've got to find a balance for those. And, and as you'll discover, and you probably already know from the time you've talked, there are some people that have been there for a long time who do the little things and figure that's how I get reelected. I'm going to fix that crack. I'm going to go look that. I'm going to go to that uh, party for that you know, kid's hockey team. Uh, but they do it at the expense of the big picture. They don't have a grasp of that. And I think it's been a failing of this city over the last 25, 30 years. I think they were getting better at it now. But how do you find that balance? Because it's, it's critical. I mean, I know every council says this is a critical time, but this is a critical time. It's, it's almost two completely separate jobs. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's finding a balance between the two because not the constituency work and the council work one isn't more important than the other. They're both equally important, but it's difficult to find the balance between, you know, making sure that you are an executive at the corporation of the city of Hamilton. Yeah, you're on a board of directors. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you're, you know, you're a community leader, but you're also the person that has to, you know, when people call the office with really pressing problems that they are also being taken care of. And it's finding the balance between the two. And like I said, it, it's it's almost like two completely separate um, jobs. I, I would just like to add, it, they are two separate jobs. But for me, it's it's the long game because how I envision an elected person is one of a city builder and a capacity builder. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's easy to respond and fix a problem. It takes a little bit more energy and time. Yes, fix the problem, but engage mm-hmm. the citizen in, yeah. in what is the problem, what are the trade-offs perhaps in solving that problem, um, how does that problem get dealt with within the city organization, and ultimately um, is enabling that citizen to understand that there are how, how problem-solving is done at City Hall and to understand perhaps the needs and circumstances of their neighbor or another neighborhood so that it's not just a, um, a checkout. You know, government is not just, um, here's what I want, here's what I want, here's what I want, solve it. It's, hmm, how do we deal with all of these wants? What priority do we give these wants? What are our resources in responding to these wants? And what is my role as a resident in solving these wants? We got a few minutes left here. Uh, let's talk about some of the big issues that are coming up. And uh, uh, the analogy I think is quite apt here. You guys got thrown into the deep end of the pool, and there's sharks in there uh, because there's some big stuff you have to deal with. Obviously, there's LRT. Uh, you spent uh, seemingly a, an eternity talking about cannabis, and that's still something <laughs> that you're going to have to make a decision about. You mentioned the idea of hiring a city manager. Mm-hmm. There's pr- there's a process issue there, let alone who the individual might be at the end of the game. Uh, rank those as, as to how important those are and, and how quickly it is. So as, as you go through council, you can say, well, we got that right. Yeah, I would say that uh, ranking between those three issues that you just placed, the city manager is a critical one because from a council perspective, this is our direct employee. This is the person who has the responsibility of shepherding the leadership of our corporation and all of the service delivery and prioritizing uh, for the rest of the city to carry out the mandate of council. And I think that when uh, when we can say that we, we feel confident about the process and we feel confident about the person that we've selected, then we've got a system that's working. We've got a governance arm that's working in tandem with uh, with the city system, and I think that's critical to carry out some of the challenging issues that we're going to have to face together moving forward. So, you know, implementing the LRT, uh, making sure that we are getting what we need as a as a as a community to best service. Uh, whether it's cannabis, legal cannabis retailing shops or whatever else is coming down the pipe and also preparing um, to make sure that we have not just adequate funding uh, in place to deal with our complex issues, but that we're really focusing on the resiliency and the future of our city and carrying that forward in the biggest way possible in terms of how we're planning and implementing. John Paul? A few of the things that are in particular in Ward 8, um, 
is the uh, the licensing for rentals, uh, student rentals, or rentals uh, in you general. Share, you share that problem. Um, with Ward 1, of, of course. And then, uh, you know, just working through the budget process is um, probably the biggest thing in the next two months. I mean, we have some pretty significant choices to make on the budget and uh, moving forward with all the other issues and the, the big picture vision for the city of Hamilton. You have one of the most engaged wards in the city, uh, neighborhood associations, people that uh, pay attention. Uh, so talk to us about your priorities. Um, I, I just would like to just echo. I know that the city manager selection, um, as as the your listeners know, we have an acting city manager. Uh, the city manager that was there resigned and moved to the city of Toronto. Um, and the previous council sl- set out the process to be used in the uh, recruitment and hire of the new city manager to the exclusion of um, a third of the council, which are newly elected. Um, Yes, this is a little bit of inside baseball. You know, how does it affect the person on my street? But it is important for the very reasons that you set out um, earlier. Uh, We all have a responsibility to ensure good governance. We all have a responsibility to ensure good policy. So who we elect. It is like our Supreme Court justice pick. It's, it is the only hire that this council, this board of director does, and uh, how we do it has to be um, open and transparent and fair for everybody around the table. But the bigger issue for me um, is the budget process um, underscored that we do not in this city have a financially sustainable uh, financial plan. We have uh, huge, huge challenges facing us. Uh, much more to come on this, and uh, we have uh, three and a half years to talk about it. So uh, let's <laughs> thank you guys so much thank for coming so much. in here. Uh, continued good luck. Uh, I know there's a pretty positive vibe in this community about the, about the new attitude and the new faces on council and what you all bring to the table. And I know we'll talk about a lot of these things as we go forward. Uh, Merry Christmas to all of oh, you. Happy Merry holidays. Christmas. Happy and, holidays. Uh, come back and uh, get ready to... Jump right into it when you come back in January. Thanks again. Right Thank you. Maureen Wilson, Narinder Nan, and uh, John Paul Danko, new members of Hamilton City Council. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, they had another shot at it in British Columbia this week, uh, that being a, a referendum to talk about electoral reform. You remember in the last federal election, uh, Justin Trudeau said that was going to be the last federal election that Canadians were going to be voting and first past the post. There was going to be electoral reform. To thunderous applause at every uh, campaign rally. Uh, well, that kind of fizzled, didn't it? Anyway, British Columbia, uh, they just did this. And uh, once again, and as a matter of fact, for the third time in British Columbia alone, they have voted by almost a two-to-one margin to maintain the status quo, that what we call first-past-the-post system, despite the fact that we have a number of politicians, a number of citizens groups that are saying, no, no, this is a flawed system. We, should, we need to look at, at different alternatives. Why is this happening? Joining us to talk about this, Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin, uh, seen every weeknight, of course, on TVO. Steve, uh, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again. Not at all. Thanks so much for the invitation. Listen, you and I have done dozens of shows about electoral reform. You've had some great panels on. They've talked passionately about this. We've heard from different groups all the time, Steve. Apparently, though, it's, it's not resonating with the public. Well, I think we have to allow for the possibility, Bill, that for 151 years in Canada, and of course in all of our provinces as well, we have been having elections the same way. And we've been having them the same way for a reason. Uh, We are descended from the British Westminster system, and this is the way we have been doing elections. And while we may complain that we don't like the way that these elections are being conducted, and that they may not be representative of, of what the people actually want, uh, there is clearly something that is culturally imbued in us uh, to want to continue to do it this way. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you and I will talk about the different systems uh, that have been proposed and all of the numbers of, you know, varieties and alternatives that people can consider. But for some reason, we seem to keep coming back to first past the post with all of its faults. Is it because it's ingrained in us? I mean, you know, you watch a race, the guy that comes first is the guy that comes first. That, that's the winner. I mean, that's that's clearly part of it. Uh, there, there's, there's sort of two ways to do politics, right, in this country. One, one way is to have the big fights and the big debates within the big parties, 
And then those parties offer themselves up and people vote for those parties. And we've got pretty much, you know, in the province of Ontario, we've got the same parties pretty much for 70 years. I mean, it's basically been the liberals, the conservatives and some offshoot of a social democratic party, call it the NDP or the CCF before that. And that's basically been it. The Greens, of course, more laterally. Uh, the, The other way to do it is rather than have the fights within the big brokered parties is to have every different point of view have its own party. And for whatever reason, Ontarians and Canadians have been a bit suspicious about this. The notion that we're not going to have a parliament made up of maybe three, four, or at the most five parties, but maybe a parliament that's made up of ten parties. You might have uh, a liberal party and a liberal democrat party and a socialist party and uh, a workers party and a Marxist-Leninist party and, uh, you know, an environmental party and a green party. And anyway, the list goes on and on, as you can imagine. And uh, let's not kid ourselves uh, that all of our problems would somehow be magically solved if we decided to go to proportional representation and give every party that achieved a certain percentage of the vote uh, an opportunity to be represented. Um, You know, all our problems would not go away. And in fact, there there are good arguments to be made that uh, that there would be more problems created as opposed to solved by having not four or five, but maybe ten parties represented in the House of Commons or the Ontario legislature. Well, and we've seen that happen in some of those European countries. And, uh, it, it, you, know, the, it, it, you know, if they make it through a year and a half, two years, you figure, hey, that's fabulous. I mean, they're constantly far, trying to form coalitions to get things done. Uh, and I know that BC's under that very same guise right now, obviously, because of what's going on in, the, in that province. But the criticism that I c- keep hearing, especially from the proponents of electoral change, Steve, is always, well, maybe maybe we didn't do a good enough job informing the voters as to what the system was like. And, and I counter that by saying, I think they know, they just don't like it. Well, uh, you know, uh, facts are facts, and I truly don't know the answer to that question. I mean, do, they, do people keep voting for first-past-the-post because they genuinely like it, or do people keep voting for first-past-the-post because they don't have enough information about the other potential alternatives in order to choose one of them? Uh, and, you know, to me, there's adequate evidence on both sides. I'll take you back to the province of Ontario 11 years ago. You may remember we had a provincial election in 2007. Dalton McGuinty was the premier and the liberal leader looking for re-election. John Tory was the leader of the Conservative. And at the time, we also had, at the same time as the provincial election, we had a referendum on whether or not we wanted to change our first-past-the-post system to something else. And you may remember there was a citizens' assembly, a so-called citizens' assembly of Mr. and Mrs. Everyday Ontario, a number of delegates. I think one was either one or two delegates from every riding in the province, so there was more than 100. And people gathered for many months. And they listened to presentations made by, uh, you know, alternative forms of government experts from around the world. And then this Citizens Assembly considered all of those alternatives and came up with what they called, I think it was mixed member proportional. That was what they came up with. So we had a referendum on whether or not we wanted to stick with first past the post or go to mixed member proportional. Now, as you can tell just by the name of it, mixed member proportional, people are going to say, what the heck does that mean? And it was complicated. It was, yes, some people are going to be elected in their ridings, but that there are going to be a separate list of candidates who will be, a, uh, you know, who will get a, a position in the Ontario legislature just by virtue of the fact that they represent a certain party. And they won't represent ridings, they'll represent parties. And it got confusing. And the fact is, uh, the Ontario government of the day made it doubly difficult to choose the new uh, system if people wanted it for two reasons. Number one, there wasn't a heck of a, there really wasn't much of a public education campaign to get people to understand what this alternative system was. And beyond that, the new system, if we had wanted to choose it, had to have, I think, what they called a double majority. In other words, they had to make sure that the majority of ridings in the province opted for it and that more than 50% of the people would vote for it. Uh, I think B.C. had the same kind of thing when they first had their election uh, many years ago. uh, At least 60 percent of the people had to vote in favor of it. So it wasn't 50 percent plus one. It was 60 percent. It had to achieve a kind of supermajority. And as well, at least 50 percent of the people plus one had to show up. That wasn't the case in the uh, election that they just had. Right. It was only about 40 percent turnout or something. So it wasn't going to make it. So, you know, you can see, Bill, that there are sort of. 
built-in disadvantages to choosing a new system. Number one, complicated new systems. Number two, not a great public education campaign teaching people what the new system would be about. And number three, this even higher bar that the electorate was going to have to jump over in order for it to come in. You know, with, with those three things going against it, it's perhaps not all that surprising that we tend to stick with the tried, tested, and true, first past the post, even with all of its faults. Are we into the same uh, mindset as, well, I'll, I'll channel Churchill here. I mean, his comments were about democracy, but uh, is first past the post the worst system until he compared it to all the other ones? <laughs> yeah, that's what he said about democracy, yeah. right? It's the worst system of governing in the world except for everything else. Um, yeah, you know, first past the post does have some advantages. What we have tended to like in Canada are strong, stable majority governments. And first past the post lets you have that. I mean, let's just go back to June the 7th. Doug Ford got, what did he get, 40, 41% of the total votes cast, something like that. And yet he got 76 seats, I think, which was enough for a very strong majority government. So even though he didn't get the majority of the votes, he got the majority of the seats. That's what people who like proportional representation don't like. They say if, you know, if, if you can't get the majority of the votes, you ought not to have the majority of the seats. Uh, of course, the downside for proportional representation is that if we like strong, you know, majority governments where governments are actually able to do things, you virtually never get that in a proportional representation system because with so many parties running, it's almost impossible to get more than 50% of the votes. And that means we're into big-time negotiations among different parties and coalition governments. And frankly, we have very, very little history, both in the province of Ontario and in Canada, with all sorts of different parties coming together to form coalition governments. It's rarely, rarely happened. And that may be why uh, the public is suspicious of it and... You know who can blame them if we if we have had no, if we have not had much experience putting coalition to get uh, governments together and let's remember in Belgium I think it went what did they take a year or two in Belgium to be able to put a, a government together several years ago and in Sweden I think they've been working what is it six months eight months they've been going without a, without a government because the different parties simply can't agree uh, you know we don't want that here uh, we we seem to like our strong stable majority governments and for all of its faults you do get that with first past the post but it, and and when there have been an attempt to do this even in a minority situation here i i find that historically steve nobody's happy in other words the the two teams that form the coalition the the supporters of those teams are are, are basically angry at those parties for selling out on your ideals and say i don't want you to bend on this one and i certainly don't like being in bed with these guys so it seems to be a lose-lose proposition that is often the case and i can remember uh, well not too long ago in the united kingdom when the liberal democrats yeah helped prop up the governing conservatives and what was the David, result David the next Cameron. Time? That was David Cameron, yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, David Cameron was the prime minister and the result was that the Lib Dem supporters were so upset at the significant amount of compromising that the Lib Dems had to do in order to have seats in the Cameron cabinet that the next time out they were absolutely routed. I'm not sure did they come back with any seats the following election? Maybe one or two. Anyway, it was it was very few. They were completely routed and that is the problem because the people who make these decisions are the most politically active and they are you know particularly in this day and age the most ideological and the least willing to compromise and at the end of the day so much of politics uh in our westminster in our westminster system uh particularly in a minority parliament is about compromise and if you can't figure out how to do that the whole thing falls apart let me ask you about intent here uh, and i i must admit i'm not too familiar with the BC situation. I mean, I knew they were going to vote on this, but I don't know about the machinations and, and how the government got involved or how they tried to promote this. But it, it, I'll go back to your Ontario example, and of course, even Justin Trudeau's promise uh, in the last federal election that that was going to be the last first past the post election. Mm-hmm. Are they sincere when they do this, or are they pandering to a certain member of the voting population that just say, "Yeah, we want this"? Because I, I get the sense sometimes that they're they're going half-heartedly through this. It didn't even get through committee, of course, federally. Uh, and as you mentioned, even when the McGinney government tried to do this, yeah, they, they kind of did it, but I'm not so sure their heart was in it. No, you're absolutely right about that. And, uh, and the reason I know that is that I've talked to both of the ministers who had the sort of uh, Ministry of Democratic Institutions responsibilities. Uh, and that's uh, Marie Boutriani from yeah. Hamilton yeah. and um, Michael Bryant, who was uh, later Attorney General and Minister of, uh, I think, Indian Affairs, as they then called it. And uh, and and both of those ex-politicians have said to me, we made the promise to look at electoral reform. 
Uh, we didn't want to look like we were breaking our promise, but we sure didn't spend much money educating people into what the alternatives were. And and it was an absolute, and Marie Boutrin has told me this on, on past occasions, she said it was an absolute struggle uh, to get uh, cabinet and to get the Liberal caucus sort of focused on this so that it would become a priority and that she could have adequate resources to go out and publicize uh, what was going on. Uh, she did, I'm trying to remember now, I think she did sort of have a bit of backing from Premier McGinty, but not a whole hell of a lot. And the fact of the matter is that when it came time to sort of when the rubber when it was time for the rubber to hit the road and for her to go out and really uh, educate and publicize what the different options were that were under consideration for that referendum, uh, you know, there just was absolutely no interest at the official uh, level to make that happen. And so. You know, I wouldn't say, I mean, I'm not here to tell you that, that when Pierre, um, Pierre, there I go again, <laughs> that when Justin Trudeau, <laughs> uh, we are showing our age sometimes when we do that, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, when Justin Trudeau made the promise in the last election campaign in 2015 that this would be the last election for first past the post, that the time for electoral reform had come, you know, do I know whether he made that promise absolutely 110% sincerely? Um, you know, I can't say that because when it when it got a little bit sticky, he ran away from that promise pretty quickly. And the people who really were banking on him uh, to bring forward electoral reform, uh, you know, they certainly believe that he gave up on that project way too quickly. Um, it may be that the prime minister was at the end of the day correct in his inference that Canadians just simply weren't ready for this or, or weren't um, weren't prepared for it, weren't interested in it. He may be absolutely right about that. Um, but his critics would certainly say he sure did not give it the old college try uh, to sell the public on electoral reform. Well, there's a political reality here that I'm sure plays into this, Steve, and that's the fact that any time this has been attempted, uh, a referendum on an issue like this, it's it's by the governing party, obviously by definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, changing this system puts their grasp on power in peril. I mean, it, a different system could mean a different result, and all of a sudden they're not in the corner office anymore. Now, they're never going to say that publicly, but you got to know that's on their mind. I, I think you're absolutely right about that, and, and let's, I mean, let, let's just, let's call a spade a spade here. The reality is that if you put proportion representation in place, which basically means if you get 40% of the votes, you get 40% of the seats. If you get 20% of the votes, you get 20% of the seats. That's how the seats are allocated in the new parliament. It's it's strict proportional representation. If that's the system you're going to go to, then it is in the interests of any majority government to torpedo that. Because you know that while you can get a majority government with 40% of the votes in a first-past-the-post system, you're never going to get it uh, in a proportional representation system. So in some respects, you are asking, and this is a hard ask, you know, you're asking governments to give, to voluntarily give up power in order to bring in a new system. And How does be, that ever work out? Well, exactly. Can we be surprised that they don't want to do that? I mean, uh, of course we can't be surprised. Well, but it's it's interesting to note, though, when it comes to selecting party leaders at, the, at conventions and such, leadership conventions, uh, they have looked at, at obviously, at rank balloting. Is, and I, I'm wondering if they're just looking at it and say, well, see, at least we're doing it. We, you guys don't want it, but we are true to our word. We're, we are trying to be open-minded about this sort of thing. Well, I don't know. Let's look back earlier this year to the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario and the leadership convention they did have. This was Doug Ford, Christine Elliott, Caroline Mulroney, and Tanya Granick-Allen, four candidates. And and they used a very unusual. They they used a kind of, they used a kind of first past the post system. I mean, it wasn't a strict. You get the most votes, you win, uh, because we know Christine Elliott got the most votes, and strangely enough, she also won the most ridings. But because of a sort of a complicated point system that the PC party used, Doug Ford actually won more points, and therefore he became the winner. And this does happen from time to time in a first-past-the-post system. I mean, perhaps the most famous example was in 1979. Pierre Trudeau won the most votes by a lot. He actually got 40% of the total votes, and it is Pierre Trudeau I'm talking about now. Uh, But Joe Clark, who only got 36% of the total votes, won the most seats. And he won the right to govern. He won a minority government. Uh, so this does happen. I mean, we've seen it in the, you know, crazier things have happened in the United States where George W. Bush um, and Donald Trump uh, got fewer votes than their opponents, but ended up winning because of the Electoral College. 
So uh, I think the point I'm trying to make here is that there are all sorts of irregularities, regardless of what system you pick. And the notion that because we have first past the post, um, you know, we're not going to have any problems with that, or it's not going to skew sometimes, or we're not going to have irregular outcomes. I mean, clearly, that's just not the case. Uh, in, in Quebec, it's, it's often the case where the Liberal Party wins more votes but the separatist party, the Parti Québécois, uh, wins government because the liberals burn a lot of votes in places like Montreal, where they win ridings by 10 and 15 and 20,000 votes, whereas the, the, the Parti Québécois used to win their ridings in rural Quebec by one or 2,000 votes. But, of course, they'd win more seats that way. That's just the way it is. Uh, after the results in B.C. yesterday, uh, Deputy Premier Carol James said, uh, as far as we're concerned, electoral reform is refinished. It's uh, done. Toast. Gone. Yeah. Uh, maybe in B.C., but uh, nationally, too? Oh, I think so. I mean, let's just go across the country. I mean, is this the third time that British Columbia yeah. has, has tried to, to deal with electoral reform? We did it once here in the province of Ontario in 2007. The prime minister of the country has already said we looked into it and we're not going to do it. Um, it. It seems to me that at least for now and at least for this generation of Canadians, uh, this is a dead letter. Now, let's remember that we ha we have had these referendums and we had this process take place at the federal level over the past couple of years uh, until the prime minister said, forget it, we're not going to do it. Those efforts came about as a result of year after year after year after year of pressure from groups like Fair Vote Canada or Fair Vote Ontario. These, this didn't, didn't just happen. It happened because there were special interest groups that pushed for it over and over and over. And, and in spite of that, nothing's happened. Uh, it may well be that we are just going to have to come to the conclusion in Ontario and in Canada that there's just no appetite for it, that as much as people are suspicious and unhappy with first-past-the-post, it may be better than any other alternative at the moment. I don't want to say that Israel is the, is the you know, sort of poster child on this because that tends to be a cliched argument. But, but as you know, Bill, we, I mean, if you look at Israel, they have a parliament, a Knesset, as they call it, yeah. with numerous political parties represented there. All you've got to do is get 5% of the, of the total votes cast and you start to win seats. And they never have majority governments there. They have complicated brokerage politics. I mean, can you imagine uh, that the, the government right now is led by a prime minister from the Likud party, but his cabinet is made up of six or seven or eight other different parties represented. I mean, can you imagine how complicated it would be in Canada if, for example, Doug Ford were the premier, but he had a, uh, you know, he had an education minister from the Liberal Party. He had a treasurer or a minister of finance from, uh, you know, who knows, the, uh, the Democratic conservatives. Uh, he had, um, you know, a health minister uh, from the NDP. Uh, he had an environment minister from the Green Party and on and on and on. It's complicated, and, no and we we have decided, you know, for better or for worse, that we're just not interested in going down that road. Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin on TV. Steve, thanks so much for this. Uh, all the best of the holiday season to you and the family. Thanks so much. Merry Christmas to you and yours and all your listeners as well, and look forward to chatting again in the new year. You bet. Thanks again. Steve Pakin. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Trying to make some sense out of what uh, went on in the last 48 hours in Washington, D.C., uh, U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis uh, resigned yesterday. Uh, at least that's what Donald Trump says, uh, citing irrecoverable, irrec well, big, big problems here. Okay, here's and here's the the gist of this. Uh, Trump issued a release suggesting that Mattis uh, resigned. Uh, a number of generals who know Mattis and worked with him, of course, when he was a, a, a Marine a general, suggested that this guy would never going to. He's never going to resign. He would not. Uh, the generals don't resign. They wait until they're relieved of their job. So this, the consensus is, is, I don't care what Donald Trump's press release said, he was fired by Donald Trump. And there are huge implications to this. Uh, a number of uh, Washington insiders who have been watching the Trump White House say that Mattis was the adult in the room. He was the, the one that you could say he's stable. He understands a lot of this stuff. And he actually acts as a shield between uh, the staff and Trump in many situations. So this has huge implications. And it wasn't even the biggest story yesterday. Well, because right up there you've got uh, Robert Mueller saying that the investigation is winding down and there may be a report by February. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the U.S. government could shut down. Uh, because of a, a stalemate that's going on now between Trump and uh, the Congress. Uh, trying to sort this all out for us is uh, Elliot Tepper, who is a professor emeritus of political science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, good morning, Bill. Where do we start? Well, let's start with Mattis then. Good thinking. Uh, 
the notion that he would never resign and that he had to be fired in order to be removed, I think illustrates just how severe this situation is because it's clear he did resign. So somebody who was in a position where, as colleagues point out, you just don't resign, he had to do so in his opinion, and he did so. Apparently he had a letter in his, in his pocket, a letter of resignation, the one that's now been released, as he went in for one final time to try to convince Donald Trump not to suddenly, precipitously pull out American troops from Syria, 2000, and incidentally, therefore, to abandon the Kurds that have been um, America's allies in the fighting arm against ISIS. And that, so the, the comment that, no, a general like him would never resign, and then he did, just adds to the magnitude of this resignation. And, and again, we can speculate as to whether he was told to, to resign or whatever. I, we don't know. The fact is, uh, the letter, uh, is, the, the resignation is one thing, Elliot. The letter and the content of that letter uh, is, uh, well, put it this way, it was not your typical letter of resignation. It's been an honor to serve in this administration. It's time to move on. Uh, it was a critique, and, and uh, not a very uh, 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 nice critique about Trump's foreign policy. About his, uh, and Syria wasn't the only thing troubling Mattis, obviously. No. Uh, here's a, uh, a quote from that letter. My views on treating allies, allies with respect and being clear-eyed about malign actors and strategic competitors are strongly held and informed by over four decades of immersion in these issues. We must do everything possible to advance an international order conducive to our security. We are strengthened in this effort by the solidarity of our alliances. And the very next paragraph is, after that uh, strong statement is, you have the right to have a Secretary of Defense whose views are aligned with yours, therefore it's time for me to step down from my position. So. That suggests that uh, he has a clear, you know, the, the innocent term policy difference with the, it leads to a resignation or a firing masks, in this case, a fundamental uh, difference in, in view between the sitting president and somebody, as, uh, as he says, who's been deeply immersed basically in defending America throughout his career. And he's known as an intellectual. Well, and, and let's talk about maybe the thing that, that put Mattis over the edge was in, uh, the Syria decision. Uh, he was advised by all of his uh, military advisors, Mattis included, obviously, not to do this. It's the wrong thing to do. It's the wrong time to do this. Uh, and, and as the story goes, and, and again, you know, you, you can only watch what was on television, uh, apparently the next day the, on Fox and the Friends in the Morning and the Rush Limbaugh show, they lambasted Trump and said, don't give in. Don't give in to these guys. You know, you're, you're going to lose your base and you're going to lose the next election. You be strong and you stand up to them. He changed his mind. He changed his mind about signing the bill. He changed his mind about Syria. Uh, so, we're, you know, the United States right now is being governed by Fox News, not by the, Donald Trump. Well, Fox News is basically the, uh, to put it gently, the, reflects the views of the administration and vice versa, or it's sometimes been called Pravda. You know, the official yeah. arm, of the propaganda arm of the Trump administration, and it's clearly interactive. Uh, this is the voice, the conduit, straight to the base. The, not just the Trump base, but the Republican Party base itself. So it's, uh, what he, he thinks he was hearing is, I think, twofold. One is, he, and you and I have talked about this in the past, everything that comes out of the White House uh, now should be viewed as feeding the base. And second of all, uh, we know that he's a master of diversion. The news for the president has not been good leading up to this announcement. It's all been entirely about Mueller and about how he's mishandling things and about the wall. And uh, if you're not going to get the wall, you have to do something to feed the base. So he's both diverted attention with this and fed the base, in his opinion, as reflected by Fox. So uh, it's, it's got that combination, but at the same time, as a, as a decision of the President of the United States, it is so contrary to what, uh, Senate, what General Mattis and Defense Secretary Mattis stood for, he felt he had to go. 
there was an interesting theory, uh, that, and again, a lot of the experts have weighed in on this over the last 24 hours or so, uh, vis-a-vis the wall. And uh, one expert who's been following this, it was on, uh, I think it was on NBC last night, suggested, you know what, in his heart of hearts, he probably doesn't even want the wall. He likes the fight, because uh, that's what enrages his base. Uh, that if he gets the wall, then he's going to have to find something else to, to, to be a martyr and be a champion for. Uh, he's not interested in governing. He's interested in the conflict itself, which is that's Donald Trump, the uh, you know the the TV guy. Well, I would reinterpret that slightly. By doing that, it also uh, works for his electoral advantage. Uh, advantage. Yeah. That's those are the folks that gave him power, you know, along with the KGB and the FBI. But uh, those are the people that uh, support him, and therefore he's going to continue to do things that connect him with that with that uh, power, that surge, that energy that to brought him to to power as president and he's got an election coming in two years and it's one that takes on extra extra importance and this can lead us back to the conversation that started this which is Mattis and the security of america and the world if all of these um, charges criminal and civil charges that are hanging over his head cannot be brought according to some interpretations as long as he's a sitting president then he needs to do anything possible to stay in power, to get reelected, to feed that base, to do what's necessary with, the, I don't, whatever role the wall plays in that. But fear of the other, and demonization of the other, and we just saw him do this with the caravan once again, has been an important part of his appeal that keeps him going, that keeps his electoral prospects going, even uh, with all the difficulties in front of him. Now then. We have General Mattis, Secretary of Defense, saying the actions you're taking, I'm paraphrasing, are undermining our security. And I can't sign on to that anymore, so I'm resigning. If, if election time comes, I hate to raise this publicly, but there's nothing like a dandy little war or some military action uh, to raise the, the popularity of the president, the sitting president, no matter who that may be, and... Uh, Vladimir Putin is facing exactly the same situation. Suddenly his popularity is plummeting, and he's talking more about a muscular foreign policy. So you can build some pretty scary scenarios. Well, and, and who was the only person that gave thumbs up to the Syria decision yesterday? It was Vladimir Putin. Oh, right? no, he also got uh, strong support from Iran. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, and, and that's one of the things Matt has talked about in his resignation letter, is, uh, is the unambiguous approach to adversaries such as Russia, China, Iran, uh, and uh, he's he's hitting all the, the the right notes and checking all the right boxes, but it's not resonating, as you say, with the base, and it never will. The other element to this is is the Republican leadership, and we're talking about Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, who's right. on his way out anyway. I don't understand why he's still so loyal to this guy, but uh, you know. And and again, to, to draw a Watergate analogy, uh, I think what pushed Nixon towards the resignation decision was when the Republican leadership uh, went to him and simply said, "We can't support you anymore." We're, well, this this is very interesting. But they haven't, that's not happened yet. Well, there's press reports now saying that a former senior White House official, and we don't know who that is. There's, there's a lot of them. <laughs> is, we don't know which one it is. Opens up by saying there will be an intervention based on this. That suggests exactly the scenario you just sketched, that the senior Republicans will go to the uh, to the president and say, sir, we backed you all the way, but we're not going to back you anymore. You've got to change your behavior. Now, they did that with Nixon, and he resigned. In this case, they might go to, to Trump and say, look, you just can't carry on this way. And uh, therefore, the pick of the next uh, Secretary of Defense is going to be crucial to prevent the Republicans from staging an intervention against their president. There's another element that comes into this, and you mentioned the Mueller investigation, and that was a story that really got buried yesterday, that that uh, they may have a final report on this till February. And I know that some people were rubbing their hands with glee, saying, boy, that that's that's going to expose everything. Uh, that report is a confidential report, and it has to go to Matt Whitaker, the acting attorney general. It does not go right to Congress, uh, and he can do whatever he wants with it. Uh, and uh, and he's he's Trump's guy. He's his handpicked replacement for that, and a guy who has been on the record as being very very critical of Mueller investigation. Yet he refuses to recuse himself from the scenario, like Jeff Sessions had to do. Despite the fact that the ethics uh, advisor said that you you should, uh, yeah, not saying you're ordered to, but you you should. You've asked my opinion. 
my opinion has been asked, and my opinion is you need to recuse yourself over the Russian investigation. And his, he's the acting, the person coming in is um, apparently of the same sort of view, that oh, yeah. the president has an expansive, an expansive power and that it can't be infringed upon and uh, is, is really going to be perhaps compliant. Um, a lot of what you and I have discussed this, I think, in the past, a lot of what is undergoing uh, threats to the presidency right now aren't going to stay, aren't going to be within the Mueller investigation only. The final report can do all kinds of things, but a lot of things are already in the court system or within the FBI under investigation, and those are going to continue no matter what happens with Mueller. And uh, the, I guess the other element to that story is, as as of the first week of January, right, that's a democratically controlled right. Congress. They can open up all these investigations yes, again. And the, and the Republicans in the Senate have just done this bipartisan, bipartisan report showing the degree of Russian intervention, which I think, you know, in the gush of things in Washington got overlooked somewhat. But the, the reality is the Russians have attacked America. Now, they did it by cyber and they did it in uh, multiple ways, which didn't involve, you know, kinetic movement. That is, there's no missiles or soldiers involved. But that bipartisan Senate report showed that the Russians uh, really intervened in a way, since this president only won by 80,000 votes scattered over three states, arguably did tip the election. So uh, we are into a new era January 1st. Let me ask you very quickly, I know we're short on time here, uh, when that report does come out, and we've seen by circumstance and innuendo and some of the uh, uh, indictments that have already been issued, uh, that the investigation may not lead necessarily to the White House, but it certainly leads to Trump Tower. We don't know exactly who in Trump Tower, whether it's Junior or, or Jared Kushner or anybody else. Are we ever going to see that uh, those facts that are uh, the, clearly Mueller has, or is this going to be a redacted, uh, edited report that's going to be released? Well, let's since time was going to close, I want to circle back around. On sure. The report will or will not be redacted. It will or won't be released, but we're going to learn much of what's in it, and there's going to be legal implications. Whether there's political implications for impeachment or not is not known. But we now see once again, through this decision regarding Syria, that the President of the United States is dovetailing, coordinating his, we don't know about officially coordinating, but his his policy decisions coordinate with what Russia wants. And that, in this case, meant the removal of troops from Syria. So, and Russia very immediately said, Donald, we like, by first name, Donald, we approve of this. So what we have here is a president whose decision-making from the campaign start through to this uh, removal of of our troops, uh, their troops, that is, uh, the American troops, dovetails with what what uh, Putin wants, but it also is a green light for institutionalizing further Iran's influence. So the idea that that America is reorienting its foreign policy to contain or constrain Iran's influence is also, also, uh, let's say, countered by this action. But the one thing I want to emphasize before we have to leave, and I'll be glad to stay on as long as you'd like, Bill, but the Kurds are being thrown under the bus here. Our allies our allies, because they're ours as well. We work with the Kurds in Iraq, not in Syria, as far as we know publicly. So the West's allies who have carried the burden of fighting ISIS, that demonic force, and who have paid the cost, have just been thrown under the bus uh, by the President of the United States. Elliot, our time is uh, short. Uh, we're just about out of time, but uh, always a pleasure, always insightful. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, Professor Emeritus, uh, majoring in uh, politics and anti-terrorism. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.